We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. I'm so excited to introduce an old friend to you. Alia Sandivar is working with game well, she's like a game and play consultant for online entrepreneurs, but that does not describe this lady. She is doing the coolest stuff and bouncing around the world as she does it. She's a uh, a fellow alum of Fielding Graduate University, and I'm so excited to have her today all the way from Munich. Welcome, Alia. Hi, how are you? It's good to be here. It's so great to have you here. And so tell us a little bit about sort of, well, for one, How the heck did you end up in Munich, of all places? (laughs) Well, actually, as you know, this year has been quite a whirlwind for everyone. And my official hometown is Amsterdam. What happened is I took a trip to Bali for a vacation. I ended up getting grounded there for five months this year while I (laughs) tried to get myself back. When I returned, I guess I'd had a shift what I wanted to do or how I wanted to be and came back, cleaned out my apartment in Amsterdam and then decided just to take it month by month in different places, just as my intuition tells me when and where to go. And so I felt like the first stop was going to be Munich. And in terms of actually getting to Munich, I wasn't sure about the border crossing, so I actually asked my cousin to drive me over the border from the Netherlands to Germany, and then there I took a train to Munich, and then from there I had another friend that took me to Austria and then back, and then here I am. Well, I mean, quite a COVID (laughs) journey because that, you know, things are changing. It's like you can't just, I mean, I suppose you probably could just hop on a train, but you don't know what's going to happen as you're coming across. and. And so it's, I mean, it's a fascinating time to be traveling for sure and to be in the world in, in a different way. And I just, uh, you know, ending up in Bali. So you were, you were doing the digital nomad thing in Bali or? Well, that wasn't the plan. Originally, my plan was just to be there one month, sort of vacation. And then while I was there, again, my intuition said just extended a bit. I was at that moment, I was in March. I was doing a big push for, the Playful Creative Summit, which is an online conference that I'm, I co-founded with my friend David Chislet. And we were making a big push for it at that moment. So I, I thought, okay, it's probably better if I just stay put and not go home quite yet so I can make this big push. And right as I extended to stay a bit longer, everything happened. And then, as you can imagine, all flights were being canceled and there was all kinds of things happening. At some point, after so many postponements or cancellations of my flight, I just decided to own it and wait until it was the right time to come back. And so in a way, I did become a digital nomad, but it wasn't planned. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I, th- I think what's m- really wonderful about that experience, I mean, sure, you get stranded. Poor kid, you get stranded in <laughs> Bali of all the places to be stranded. Really? And you can yeah. continue your work. I mean, what a beautiful thing. And, yeah. and that yeah. that's a really amazing part of the ability to, you know, to be able to work remotely from anywhere. And as long as you've got whatever the basic tools you need, 
you're able to make it work. And so it's kudos to you for making it work, but it's pretty cool that you were able to do it pretty fluidly. I mean, at least it seemed from the outside, I'm sure from the inside, there was a little more turmoil than what we saw on the surface. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I, I think there's always a time there where you sort of have to trust that everything is going to work out. And of course, I was in Bali, but but there was a, a, a period there where it was quite frantic as you saw a huge exodus of people trying to come back. Also, governments arranging to send flights to bring back their citizens or residents. And you saw all kinds of different things, you know, navigating rules and regulations between different countries, because, you know, the Indonesian government had certain rules and regulations about either staying or leaving. If you had a flight like I did through Singapore, they had other rules and regulations as to when they were going to open, where they were going to close. And then, of course, the Netherlands had different, yeah, different rules and regulations. And I didn't make the first flight out with the Dutch government. At the time, I had a friend who was sick, so I opted to stay with her. And they told us, we will send another one for you. And then they told us they weren't going to send anymore. So we had to make our way back when we could. And then the Indonesian government closed because of Ramadan. They were afraid that a lot of families would be traveling between the islands and that would then affect the rates. So they opted to close all the islands. So you couldn't travel between the islands anymore for two months. Oh, wow. And, and that's really when I really, really got locked in because then there were flights, as I understand, from Jakarta to Amsterdam, but I couldn't get to Jakarta. So I had to wait until the islands were open again. I went to Bali on part of our honeymoon and yeah. absolutely loved it. And I would imagine at least, I'm sorry that you got stuck, but <laughs> I have so many wonderful memories of the people there. They're yeah. just wonderful, welcoming people. And I would imagine yeah. that that culture really, you know, it bodes well for an environment where if you're stuck, people are probably fairly sympathetic and helpful. Oh, yeah. I felt like I got a pristine experience of Bali because most of the tourists, most of the people left. So it wasn't this crowded place that it, it usually is. All the big clubs and bars closed. So the party people, let's call them, even though I like my drinks here and there, but the true partiers had also left the island. So really who was left were maybe like a different crowd, a different vibe. And I really got to connect a lot with the with the locals while I was there. Like you could really build friendships and connections and people were very, very kind. I felt really well taken care of. I even had there's this one lady who I used to who I used to go buy my lunch from. She was because you know they have like the warungs where you can buy your rice and mm -hmm. vegetables and things like that. And so, but I was the only like non-local that would go there I think <laughs> yeah I just liked eating local food and so I would go there maybe once or twice a week and I remember when I left I said hi I'm just coming by to tell you thank you that I'm like I'm gonna be leaving next week and she was 
what she came around she was crying giving me a hug and I was like yeah Aww. I felt so warm and cared for and yeah and of course I, I I was there five months and a bit so I ended up building a life there right so I had my grocery store the cafes I would go to I had people who I worked with closely like we we had a gentleman who became a friend who was initially our driver and eventually he was introducing us to his family and taking us on trips and things like this yeah and you just kind of find your cool people that surround you who who you trust who are locals and yeah I, I felt like it became very much my home for that time oh that's so wonderful would you go back oh yeah I plan to go back uh, when the borders open back in January or February. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's like you have such a magical experience. It's like, yeah. oh, I can't go back. It could never possibly be as great as it was before. But there are other places where they're just so close to our hearts that we're like, of course, yeah. I'm going back. It's, you know, I feel that way a little bit about Belize that during my college years, I would go down there and spend a month in between sort of the end of the ski season and the beginning of the, the summer season, because I was a seasonal worker. I, was, I taught skiing. And it was this magical break. And, but it was back in the day when, you know, the Blue Hole and that whole area was fairly, I mean, there were tourists, but there weren't nearly to the same extent now. And now the reef is so damaged from, you know, from over tourism that oh. I'm like, I, I just don't know if I want to go back. You know, yeah. it's sort of it's just not the same thing. And and there's a lot of the people that I was there with are, are no mm -hmm. longer there. So I don't want to, I mean, we could talk forever about your travels. <laughs> yeah, we could. <laughs> and this show is partially about, you know, the global nomad and the different places and wonderful experiences you've had abroad. But I also want to touch on sort of the type of work that you do and mm -hmm. your background and, you know, both being behavioral scientists. When you're traveling, you have a very different experience than a lot of other people because you're particularly when you're coming from a systems perspective that mm -hmm. you and I have, it's often gives you a different sort of a different filter when you're experiencing the world. And I'm curious as to both from a game designer perspective and from a mm -hmm. behavioral science perspective, how has that changed the way you see the world as you move around? Hmm. Meaning how has, how, how has my background helped me in how I view the world or well, yeah, as a nomad, which you may not okay. perceive yourself as a nomad, but you okay. are, you are definitely in the category of a nomad, my dear. <laughs> okay. Uh, you may not be moving every week, but you're still, you yeah. know, so, but I mean, as, as you move around, does it change the way that you perceive or the way you, the way you engage with different cultures or environment that you're in? Or is it just, you bring your laptop and you move along like everybody else? Well, I think there's the, I, of course, bring my laptop and I move along with everyone else. But I definitely think that what happens is that you, for me personally, I develop my own personal strategy of the things that work for me and that are important to me when I arrive. And then I sort of build my life around these things. So, and then of course, then the culture that you're a part of informs maybe the relationships that you can have, the connections that you can have. But for example, of course, the first thing I do is try to find a place to stay, right? And often I try to go to places where I know I might already know a few people. So I could start with something because otherwise, 
working by yourself as an entrepreneur, it can be quite lonely. And if there aren't at least a handful of people in the city that you can just go grab a coffee with, even the strongest, most secure person, I can still feel like, whoa, when, when do I get to see or touch another human? So, and particularly now when a lot of co-working spaces are limited or closed, we have to get really creative about what to do. So some, some of my strategy, of course, find a place in a location that for me personally is, is connected a bit with nature, but also close enough to town that I can go and see people. The second most important part for me is I need to find the best coffee ever. <laughs> Amen, city. sister. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> so I do sleuth Googling to find out the best barista places. And then and then I pick three or four in each, you know, city. And and those become my working places for the morning. So I, I do kind of create this routine where I wake up. I exercise, I eat something wherever it is that I'm staying, and then I try to leave immediately to go to a cafe to be around people. And then my first week or two in a place, I will be scouring and checking out the coffee in each of these places and also for work environment, if I can stay there longer, what's the situation. And so that's that's sort of like my priority. <laughs> and then and then of course then. The rest of the routine is I, of course, I come home in the afternoon. I also do my best through the Facebook groups that I'm a part of or through different networks that I'm a part of to post that I'm in a new city. And if anyone's open for coffee, tea, drink, because, you know, after work drinks are also fun and, and fine. And, and during the summer, it's really great because you can sit outside and there aren't limitations in terms of who you're meeting or how you're meeting people. Yeah. And so I sort of have those kind of basic things that help me get grounded in, in how I can set myself up. And I think once I have some of these basic things in place, what happens is I become, you know, as, as someone who, who focuses on behavior, then I become an observer. Like, what is it that people do? You know, how is it that people pay for the bus? Mm-hmm. How is it that people, what, what is the routine of the people in the environment that I'm in? Are, do, people, are, do people exercise? And if they exercise, where do they exercise? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of sort of like navigating and, and a lot of obser, observation, sort of like, what are, what are the customs? How do people do this or do that? Like, for example, in the... Okay, I'll, I'll talk about the coffee in a second, but I'll talk about <laughs> money, money, money first. But for example, in the Netherlands, almost everything is digital. Yeah. You, you literally will sometimes go to a place and they will not let you pay in cash. There's no option to pay in cash. Germany is not like that. You have to always carry cash with you because you could be going to a beer garden or somewhere where there's no card option. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of things you have to learn and sort of plan for. Also, the other big thing I forgot that I always plan for is I find out what are the apps for that city for public transport, taxis, you know, all these things. These And right now, since I'm in Europe, I do have a European SIM card. But if I'm in a different area of the world, then I, that's another, you know, to do, make sure you get a SIM card right away. So, but for example, when... 
in terms of coffee, like my my go-to type of coffee is really strong with a little bit of milk. And depending on where you are in the world, this type is called something different. Mm -hmm. So it's because not everyone makes it the same. So for example, in Bali, the type of coffee I like is called a piccolo, which is the same as in Italy, or at least in Venice. Now in Amsterdam, this type of coffee with that same level of milk uh, espresso ratio is called a cortado. Mm-hmm. And here in in Munich, it's called a flat white. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you have to figure out <laughs> how would the name that they call the thing that you want. <laughs> and it takes a little bit of trial and error to figure it out. <laughs> it's so true. I'm with you 100%, Alia. I, I have the same issue. And actually, I, it sounds like I like my coffee the same way you do. So I definitely have my sort of, you know, the lexicon for how yeah. do you say, how do you get that coffee at every place? And yeah. I actually have taken to bringing a cup with me Yeah, that is only big enough for two shots of espresso and enough milk. So they can't overfill it with milk. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I use that with me. And you know, I, I travel with it all the time, because then I just give that to them. And I say, yeah. I want two shots of espresso and enough milk to, to go on the top. And that's it. <laughs> no. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to take that tip from you. Then you don't have to worry about like names and things. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, even within the US, I found that, you know, it it varies when you go to yeah. different coffee shops because some of them <laughs> go with sort of the Italian format yeah. and there's others that have sort of the Starbucks format. Yeah. And they're, you know, so they're all, they all have their own little special thing and they think that that's the thing. Yeah. Not, not recognizing that it's different everywhere. It's so. That yeah. It's very different everywhere. So I guess in terms of like a game designer, it's a bit like... You know, I'm trying to figure out what is the game being played by this culture, this place right now? You know, how how do I enter this play space that people have constructed? You know, what are the rules that I'm supposed to like abide by or if I want to play with or, you know, I mean, a perfect, I don't think that people realize if they haven't traveled that there are different rules about mask wearing throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And because you assume that everyone has the same rules, but that's not the case. For example, in the Netherlands, you know, there there is no requirement to enter a restaurant with a mask. You just enter. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is. I mean, because from their perspective, it's like, you know, the the virus is not like smart. It doesn't like say, oh yeah, you're sat down now, therefore we won't touch you anymore. <laughs> you know? it's it's gonna touch you if you enter either way but so this is their perspective and then here in Munich people are very very serious you have to wear a mask until you sit down and when you sit down you take it off okay fine that's the game being played here so that's the game I'll go along with right in the Netherlands you don't need a mask to go into the grocery store here you need a mask to go into grocery store in in Bali you don't need a mask to go to a restaurant but you do need a mask to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So in terms of how many people can gather together or not gather together, you know, and of course, those rules are constantly changing depending on your location. So, I mean, of course, this is in this time 
of our planet, right? There's these extra negotiations we have to do, but it is part of the game of, in terms of figuring out, okay, what are the rules of this place and how are people playing them? And to which degree do I continue and want to play them? And to which degree I'm like not, not going with it. And I don't mean this in terms of COVID, but I mean in terms of like general culture, right? So, yeah. And I, I think that it's it's so interesting. And it's even my husband and I spent the summer, we drove across the US uh, both mm-hmm. ways. We drove from San Francisco to Boston and then Boston back to San Francisco and took slightly different routes each time. And even from state to state and different parts of the states, it mm-hmm. really varied. And that was really, it was quite profound to see the subcultures within the US mm-hmm. and and how much we're we're completely unaware of them until we're in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. I want to shift a little bit to sort of thinking about play and mm-hmm. humor, because mm-hmm. you've experienced, I mean, this is something we talked a little bit in the green room about some yeah. of the challenges in culture in terms of how long it takes to build the dynamic where there's sort of true friendships, because yeah. mm-hmm. some some cultures are more open to it. Others, they're you know they stick with the same friends that they've known mm-hmm. since childhood and never break out of that group. And there's others like Americans who like sit down at a bar and the, that person is now their new best friend, and so they'll tell their <laughs> whole life story to them. You know, there's the the whole you know the whole gamut. Yeah. But there's also one of the things that I've always found very profound, particularly moving around in Northern Europe, and sometimes in Asia as well, is the way that play and humor is and and sort of, you know, the idea of fun is perceived. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's always sort of even when you learn a language, it's sort of the last thing that mm-hmm. you learn, because it's so subtle. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering how What's your experience with that? And also, how do you think about that when you do game design? Yeah, so I think mm, in terms of my experience of different cultures and and fun and humor, of course, I've seen varieties. Most of the time, what happens is I find myself being much more humorous than the Northern Europeans. So I, I will especially during these times, there's a lot of things going through WhatsApp and people sending different things. And some things I thought were really quite hysterical. And I would get the funny bits from Dutch or German friends. And I, and I would feel like, wait, this, this isn't quite that funny. But they were, <laughs> they were really quite like, like, for example, I think I saw a picture of like, a guy that was mowing in like like some sort of like suit or something but they just thought it was absolutely hysterical and I'm like okay but it wasn't like a like a like I've seen pictures of scuba suits or something it was just like a like a suit like you know, so it was like okay I I okay you know so <laughs> you gotta have the context yeah yeah sure. it was like yeah. you, don't, you don't have the context I'm like I'm not sure what this means right and then, of course, then I saw quite a few, your listeners probably don't know that I'm Colombian by birth, and um, I was born and raised there until I immigrated to the United States. So, of course, I received a lot of humorous things from my Colombian side of the family. And, and 
And then that I just I just completely cracked up. And one particular one that I thought was quite funny was a woman that comes in after shopping. So she's coming in home, coming home after shopping and being exposed outside. And so they pass the bag of the groceries very carefully with a broom. And then the family proceeds to literally throw buckets of soap and water and brush her with like floor brushes that you brush the, the <laughs> floor with, you clean the floor with, and then really clean her before she can come in. Now that is funny. <laughs> it's, it sounds like my sister my sister is an essential worker because she works at the daycare yeah. at Johns Hopkins yeah. and she's like yeah. I get like completely scrubbed down before I enter yeah. the house yeah yeah but this was like literally the fun like they were she was being washed outside in the sidewalk before she could even come in and uh I mean it both spoke to like the time and the exaggeration of like how clean we have to get right yeah. so so but I definitely think context Context is important. Now, when it comes to games and designing games, and this was also part of my research, one of the things that I am, it's my opinion, that game designers and also people who are in the gamification or playification space, as I do, they do a really good job in trying to understand their audience. Uh, understanding, say, the cultural value, if you're a good designer, which a lot of people putting games out that are appropriate for their audience will be designing for them appropriately. They'll do their research in terms of the, the player's cultural background, age, this kind of thing, motivations, and then they will design the game based on this, which is great. The The challenge that I don't see being that's not included in this is that often the perspective worldview cultural background of the designer herself is not taken into account because we are products of all the experiences that we've had right and all the diversity and complexity that we've accumulated through a life everything we've been exposed to and so therefore what we create, what we design, what we produce is going to have a flavor of that. And both awesome things that are going to come out of that flavor, as well as like biases that we might have based on that flavor. And this is like a piece that I notice, unless you're like in ethical design studies or something like this, it sort of goes missing when people are designing. It's the, I feel like it's like the third component to a full-fledged design, you know, it's not, it's not just about the players and the design of the game itself, but also about the designer. I feel like part of the reason is because, of course, when you get into really huge teams, like 400 people or building a game, then it's not so much the vision or the culture of one person that's now informing, right? It can be the culture of the company or, you know, some other type of culture that could be informing the design so so it can't it doesn't always look very clear cut but when you are yourself designing for small groups or you're then it's gonna come you know it's, it's gonna it's gonna play a role in what you're creating and I think that's all I wanted to say <laughs> I don't know what else. 
It's so true. And I think that it's something that just it's sort of this whole thing that we're talking about unconscious bias or unconscious, Mm -hmm. you know, when we when we're not really aware of that filter that we create for everything that, you know, Mm -hmm. everything that comes out of us is coming out through a filter. And unless you build that awareness of what the filter is, Mm -hmm. it impacts the output. So I, I think it's a really interesting way of perceiving, for example, you know, when you're coming to a new city, if someone's creating sort of a scavenger hunt type type mm-hmm. of adventure or, or or even, you know, a visitor's guide, you know, here's a fun way to see our city, mm-hmm. that if you're doing it from the local perspective, you may not understand the needs of the visitor or the mm-hmm. other way around. And so often it's you need to invite in those perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so in any kind of, you know, whether it's a video game or whether it's mm-hmm. just something that's supposed to be fun, what you perceive as fun may not be perceived as fun by others. Or what may be scary may be different mm-hmm. for, for someone mm-hmm. versus the other. And so it's really important to recognize what those filters are, both when we are designing things for others, mm-hmm. but also when we are consuming them, recognizing mm-hmm. sort of, you know, what is it that I'm coming into and you know, and sort of who developed it, who, who's okay. offering this, you know, do we, do okay. we want the, the tour that's going to take us to all of, you know, the, the graveyards and the most dangerous places mm-hmm. in the city, just because it's kind of cool and adventurous, or do we want to, you know, go to the churches and uh, whatever. But, but yeah. I think that yeah. it's, uh, it's really important to recognize the source. And, yeah. and when we are the source, it's also important to recognize the source. <laughs> Yeah, so. yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's that's a very important step. <laughs> so you've got some really cool things coming up. You've got, and I want our listeners to hear a little bit more about that because I think mm-hmm. there's also probably an opportunity for them to participate. Am I, so can you tell us a little bit about the summit? Yeah, sure. So we launched a summit in April called the Playful Creative Summit, and we invited 45 speakers. Um, It was a free uh, online conference. And we invited 45 speakers from different creative and play fields to come and talk to us about what they do, how they do it, why they do it, and why they think creativity and playfulness are important aspects of human experience. And it was uh, really super fun. And we had about 1500 people uh, register. So we're very excited about that. And we're going to be repeating it next year in April as a way to get people excited and warming up to that. We decided to invite some of the speakers who had the highest views to come and speak to us once again through what we're calling pop-up events. So once a month, the first Wednesday of the month of each month from now until the first Wednesday in April, we will be having conversations with these speakers um, about playfulness and creativity. And of course, we'll reflect upon the year and the importance of playfulness and creativity in all times, of course, and what they have gathered uh, from this year. And so, so this is something that we're also you know, offering. So if your audience is interested in joining us, I think by the time this recording goes out. Our next pop-up will be the first Wednesday in November. And we have Dave Pelham, who is a photographer who actually did the photography for for the summit. So that would be for November 4th. So yeah, and we're very excited. And this will be a monthly event that we're offering uh, to folks 
uh, until, you know, to get them excited, to get to know us, to get to see what the subjects that we like to talk about. And then, of course, leading up to the summit, which will be on April 21st, which I think it's uh, International Creativity Day or oh, something nice. like this. And that's April yeah. 1st, 2021. So. Uh, yes, so, yes, 2021. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be out of this. We'll see. Yes, oh, I'm like, hoping for April, hoping for April. Yeah. Like roll yeah. the dice. So how do people find out more about it? Is there a link that's already set up that people can follow? Or it sounds like you may have a Facebook group that people can participate in to sort of there's, hear what's yeah, going on? There's, yeah, there's a link I can share with you because it's sort of like a sublink of the playfulcreativesummit.com. They can go there to look at this year's summit. But if they want to sign up for the pop-up events, then I'll give you the link. It doesn't actually have a name yet. So please look at the notes. <laughs> okay, no problem. All of this will be in the show notes as we like to remind people if you're listening to this while you're driving, do not try to write it down. It will be in the show notes. You can always find it later. I do have one other thing that I'm also doing. I'm doing for entrepreneurs, I'm doing a gamification, but I call it playification challenge. And that will be October 19th through the 26th. It's a free challenge in which I will be talking about different aspects of gamification and how to gamify a product that you might have. And then each day we'll be covering different subjects, including, you know, your role as a designer, how to design for different types of player types, how to define what your playpen, as I call it, sort of like the box in which you're going to play is, as well as some of the game theories and game mechanics that could be helpful. That sounds great. I count me in. I'm, I'm coming <laughs> okay. to that one. Awesome. I love it. So thank you so much. I, I could keep talking to you for hours. Yeah. As we talked about in the green room, we're like, this is dangerous. We haven't caught up in a while and we can easily chat, but I know it's the end of your day and the beginning of mine. So I will honor your time and just I am so delighted to reconnect with you. And thank you so much for sharing everything with our listeners. And it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you and I hear know. what you're up to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been such a delight. Actually, I'm quite energized now after our call. Yay, <laughs> so. yay, so happy. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review if you haven't already and help others find us. So such a pleasure to have you all here today. And we look forward to next time. Bye bye for now.